I can't uh, think of anyone who gets very excited about the uh, concept of their death. We try to uh, evade it as much as possible, like uh, the woman that C.S. Lewis once referred to, who said that uh, she really didn't think much about death because she felt that when her time come came, they will have done something about it, she said. But uh, unfortunately, no one can do anything about it. The Grim Reaper is out there relentlessly stalking us. That's just one of those hard, brutal facts that we have to face. The death rate throughout human history has been a consistent 100%. There's really only one who enables us to beat death. But uh, just thinking about our death is scary. It's frightening. Woody Herman said, or Woody Allen said, it's, uh, you can tell I've been through this three times. <laughs> Woody Allen said, uh, it's impossible to think objectively about your death and carry a tune. And uh, I, uh, I agree. All of us are looking for a way out. You may have seen uh, Larry King's interview of... Uh, uh, <laughs> I got it right the first two times. <laughs> Billy Graham uh, the other day, and uh, Graham made the comment that uh, any time he looked over a crowd, he was aware that most people there were struggling with fear of death. It's a very real problem. So the question is, what, what can we do? We can't evade it. We would like very much to believe the resurrection story. We would like to be convinced that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. And uh, we would like to be convinced that we will rise with him. But uh, how can we be convinced? Even those of us that are longtime Christians, I think, occasionally struggle with belief and, and uh, our inability to really conceive of the fact that we're going to rise someday from the dead. Well, here's a story I think that will help you. John chapter 20, we're continuing uh, on in our study of the Passion Week, culminating now in the resurrection. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary of Magdala went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. That would be John, who remains anonymous in his gospel. And uh, she said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, that would be John again, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed, for they had not understood from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Back then, no one uh, really seriously thought that a dead body could come to life. You put it in the grave and then you try to put your grief away as best you can. Death made a vast uh, difference as it does now. Wordsworth has a 
poignant little poem about his beloved uh, Lucy. He says, she lived unknown and few could know when Lucy ceased to be. For she is in the grave and oh, the difference to me. And a lot of us can identify when we place some loved one in, in the grave, it makes a great difference. And it certainly did to Mary. We'd be hard-pressed to find anyone in the New Testament who loved Jesus more. It's more than infatuation. She, uh, she loved him intensely. It's because Jesus had delivered her from her own private hell. Demonized, a prostitute in the, in the city of uh, Magdala, our Lord had, uh, had delivered this uh, crazy, manic uh, mistress from her background and had set her free. She couldn't forget it. She followed him everywhere he went, followed him through his early ministry, and sat at his feet while he taught, learned from him, listened to him. She was uh, one of the last to leave the, the cross. She stood at the foot of the cross. She heard uh, his words from the cross. She saw him give up his spirit. And uh, she was there when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took him down from the cross, and she followed that pitiful little procession to the tomb. Most of the apostles were in hiding by this time. But uh, Mary followed him all the way to the grave. And she helped to prepare his body. She lovingly wrapped the strips of linen around his body and applied the spices that uh, they used for preparation for burial in those, in those days. And it seems that the Sabbath, uh, the, the, the darkness descended, the Sabbath began before they completed the preparation, so they had to go back into town with the job yet unfinished. But very early on Sunday morning after the Sabbath, Mary Magdalene, before anyone else, got out of bed, made her way through the dark streets of Jerusalem back to the tomb. And as she was making her way back to the tomb, there must have been a number of thoughts that were going through her head. I'm sure she was very angry at the Jewish clergyman that had railroaded Jesus to the cross, and probably furious at the Romans that had crucified him, and resentful at the apostles who had scattered and were in hiding, and probably even resentful at God who had taken her Lord away from her. And fearful, not knowing what she would do when she came to the tomb. She couldn't roll the stone away. She was afraid the soldiers would not let her inside to complete the preparations for, for burial. All those thoughts were going through her mind when she came to the tomb. And in the gloom of that cave, she, of, that, of that morning, she looked at the cave and she saw that the stone had been, had been rolled away. And without even looking inside, she turned on her heels and ran back into town found the place where Peter and John were, were lodging and shaking them out of their sleep. She told them, they've stolen the body of our Lord. Peter and John hit the floor running, grabbed what clothes they could, started back toward, toward the tomb. Uh, John was younger than Peter, apparently, and he out, outraced him. Arrived at the tomb first, peeped in the, the opening. But didn't go in. Peter, in his usual impetuous style, ran right past John, right into the tomb, and was transfixed by what he saw. Now, this is what he saw. You have to understand what's going on here. What he saw was the grave clothes that were wrapped in the shape of Jesus that by this time had hardened because of the application of the spices. Some 75 pounds of spices had been applied. 
And as they hardened, they formed a sort of cocoon in the shape of the body. So they saw this, uh, the case, the mummy case. And then separated by a few inches, the turban that had been placed on his head. And John, and we have his words for this. We have to take his word for it. John saw the grave clothes and he believed. Because, you see, he understood that the body could not have been stolen. The grave wrappings had not been torn apart. But that Jesus' body had invisibly passed right through the wrappings. And he had indeed risen. The cocoon was there, you see. The mummy was there. The mummy case, rather, was there. But the body was gone. And John saw. And he believed. Now, what he saw was some hard evidence. He didn't see the Lord, but he saw the evidence. And for him, at this point, it was enough. He turned on his heels, raced right past Mary. You would think he would have said something to Mary. I see, he said, but he didn't. And you know why? It's because in those days, men did not think that women were capable of deep theological understanding. Jesus did. He took them very seriously. He taught them, just as he taught the other disciples. But John really did not think that Mary would understand. And so he ran back into town to tell the other men. And Mary lingered. At the tomb. Now, let me try to explain uh, John's methodology in his book. He tells us that at the very end, there are a lot of things that Jesus did, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And here's what he meant He is alluding to various eyewitnesses that saw certain things that Jesus did, they heard certain things that Jesus said. So what he's doing is adducing evidence, historical evidence, which is what what you have to do with history. History is non-repeatable. You know, you can't rerun Custer's Last Stand. You can't redo any aspect of history. These these truths in history uh, are not susceptible to the scientific method. Only those that are there at the time, you see, can verify what actually happened. So the best historical evidence is the evidence of credible eyewitnesses. That's what John is doing. He's bringing forward certain eyewitnesses that were there at the time and are testifying that this is indeed what happened. John later in his little book says, that which we have seen and heard, we apostles, we declare to you that you also may believe. Now what John is doing in in these latter chapters of John, and particularly here in chapter 20, is, uh, is telling us about certain people who were there at the time and who actually saw certain things that transpired. We saw... What John saw, he, he saw the grave clothes, and he believed. And then a bit later, uh, when the disciples, uh, when, when Mary uh, went back into the tomb, she saw two angels in white, and then later she saw Jesus in verse 14. And then in verse 18, Mary's witness is, I have seen the Lord. The disciples then later uh, that, uh, that day, they saw the Lord, verse uh, 20. And then in verse 25, Thomas's uh, comment, who was not there when, uh, with the disciples, the ten, when the Lord appeared, he said, unless I see nail marks, I will not believe. Jesus said to Thomas when he did appear, put your finger here, see my hands. Jesus said to him, to Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, that's us, you see, and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples. You see, they were eyewitnesses. But these are written that you, who are not present, may believe. That's the best historical evidence that we can have, is the witness, credible witnesses. 
Now I ask you, what did Mary see that she passed on? Well, let me uh, begin reading with verse uh, 10. <coughs> Pardon me. Then the disciples went back to their homes. John raced right by Mary. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and, and the other at the, at the foot. Mary is known as the weeping lady. As a matter of fact, our, uh, our English word maudlin is uh, based on the French pronunciation of the word Mary Magdalene, Mary Maudlin. As you know, C.S. Lewis taught in Maudlin College at Oxford University, Magdalen College. Unfortunately, the word Maudlin has uh, uh, almost a bad connotation today of being overly sentimental, but originally it just meant to be tearful, and Mary is always weeping. She, we- she wept because she loved the Lord so much. C.S. Uh, or as George MacDonald says, uh, sometimes tears are the only cure for weeping. She wept much. It's a wonderful story that Luke tells, a very touching story about Mary. At least I believe it's about Mary. She's anonymous in the story, and I think Luke is trying to, she's probably still alive when Luke wrote his gospel, and he was trying to spare her any more humiliation and, and notoriety. So he just kept her name out of the account. But the story is told of a certain Simon, who's a Pharisee, invited Jesus to lunch. It was a setup. He wanted to humiliate Jesus, wanted to embarrass him. So none of the, the, the social amenities were offered to him. No one washed his feet when he came into the house. No one gave him the obligatory kiss that uh, Near Easterners uh, give one another when they greet uh, friends. No one anointed his head with oil. He just sat there ignored. But Mary crashed the party all-male group, and she made her way through the men, and, and she knelt at his feet in a little, little alabaster jar, very expensive perfume. She broke the neck off the jar, began to pour it on his feet, and she began to weep. And she wept, and she wept, and she wept. And uh, she was embarrassed, and teardrops were falling on his feet, so she took her long hair, and she began to wipe his feet with her hair in order to wipe the tears away. And Simon thought to himself, if Jesus just knew who this tramp was, he would never let her touch it. And Jesus knew what he was thinking. He said, Simon, let me ask you something here. He said, there are two fellows. One owed uh, their bank, his banker, $50,000. Another owed his banker $5,000. And the banker forgave both the debts. Which one will love him more? And Simon said, well, I suppose the one that was forgiven $50,000. Jesus said, exactly. Right on the nose, Simon. This woman was forgiven much. And therefore, she loves much. See, that was Mary's signature, the weeping lady. She loved Jesus like you wouldn't believe. And now he was gone. See? And so she wept. And uh, apparently, it didn't strike her that it would be strange that there are two angels in there. I think her grief had so obscured her thinking that she... It didn't even dawn on her that these were angels. Here were these two figures in the inside the cave, and it was dark in there, and, and, and one of them said, Why are you weeping? And she said, Because they've stolen the body of my Lord. If you just tell me where he is, I'll go get him. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone when they look over to your shoulder at, at someone behind you, and you know there's someone approaching from behind you, and you turn around? That's what happened. The angels looked at, they looked over Mary's shoulder, 
to, to our Lord who was standing behind her. But she didn't recognize our Lord either because he appeared in some unrecognizable form as he did from time to time or because of her tears. And she said to him, thinking he was the gardener, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means uh, teacher. You know the word rabbi, that's the Hebrew word for a high one, Ravi. This is the Aramaic form, Rabboni, my master, my lord. Jesus said to her, don't hold on to me, don't cling to me, literally, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary of Magdala went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Mary turned around and she thought he was the gardener and he said to her exactly what the angels had said. Mary, why? he said, why are you weeping? Woman, why are you weeping? And she said, oh, sir, and it dawned on her that if anybody had a chance to steal the body and put it away, it was probably the caretaker. And she said, oh, sir, if you've taken him away, tell me where he is. I, I want to find his body. And just one word, he said to her, just set, set her name, Mary. And she knew who he was. She'd heard him use her name so many times. And she recognized the love, the compassion, the understanding. You see, this is one that, had, that knew everything she'd ever done. He could see right through her like a pane of glass, and he still loved her. And when, when he said Mary, it all fell into place. And she cried out, Master! And she threw her arms around him and started to give him a big hug. Now, the, the Jesus' response sounds a little cold and harsh in translation. It sounds like he's you know, pushing her away, but that's not what happened. I'm sure that she clung to him for a moment. And then he said to her, Mary, uh, <laughs> we have things to do. I have to return to the Father. You have to go tell the disciples that you've seen me. and We need to get about our business here. Mary went running back into town saying, I've seen the Lord. I've seen the Lord. Now I ask you, what was so special about Mary? Do you understand that none of the other apostles had yet seen the Lord? She was the first. He later appeared to Peter. John and Peter had seen the evidence, physical evidence, but they hadn't seen the Lord. And later he appeared to Peter. And later he appeared to the ten in the upper room. And later he appeared to the eleven with Thomas. And later he appeared to 500 at one time. And then he appeared to Paul, as Paul puts it, as one born out of due time, a kind of Johnny come lately. But uh, it wasn't Peter who was first. He was head of the apostolic band. It was Mary. What was it about Mary that made her so significant? Why did she see him? And not the other other apostles. Well, I'll tell you why. It's because she loved him. See, we, we only get as much of the Lord as, as we want. If you want. If you want him with all of your heart, if you long for him with all of your being, then you'll have all that, that he has to give. Jesus put it this way. He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. Now, he's not saying I'm going to give you a list of commands, and if you do them, 
then that'll show me you, you love me. He's just saying, if you really love me, you'll want to do what I ask you to do. You'll want to follow me. You'll want to be my disciple. If you love me, he said, then I and my Father will love you, and we will come and we will show ourselves to you. Do you want to see Jesus? Do you want to know that he's risen? Do you want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's all true? Then it doesn't begin with reason. It begins with the heart. See, as Jesus put it in another place, if you want to know, or if your will is to do the will of God, then you'll, you'll know whether what I'm saying to you is true or not. See? That's the biblical theory of knowledge. It doesn't begin in the head. It begins in the heart. As Pascal said, the heart has reasons that reason doesn't have. Now let's apply this to, uh, to the resurrection, to the empty uh, tomb. How can we convince ourselves that this is all true? Well, the, the historical evidence, the physical evidence is extremely good. The evidence that Jesus rose from the dead is as good or better than the evidence for any other event in antiquity. I don't, you, you name any historical event, the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead is as good or better than that event. See, the problem is there's supernatural elements here, and that's what people stumble over. But it, the evidence itself is extremely good because there are eyewitnesses there that saw what was happening. And, and they were credible. I mean, their lives stack up. And... Uh, no, we, 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 can, we can trust what they, what they have to say. Now, there have always been objections to the fact of the resurrection, but the objections don't, they don't neutralize the evidence because no one has ever thought up an objection that once for all vitiates the evidence. For, for example, the first objection that was raised was, well, you know, they, they stole his body. And I ask you, who stole his body? The Roman officials? Well, if they had, they would have produced his body. The moment the rumors began to circulate that Jesus had risen from the dead, they wanted to stop this, what they consider to be a cult at, its, at the root level. They would, they would have brought the body of Jesus up. How about the apostles? Maybe they stole the body. They, they were so enamored of Jesus, they didn't want this whole thing to fold, and so they stole the body. Well, let me ask you again. These are the men that wrote the New Testament. If, if Jesus were such a preposterous deceiver, I mean, if he made these incredible claims and then he died this ignominious death, ignominious death, and that was the end of it, would these men have written what they wrote in the Bible? About, and, and then also, remember, these men and their wives went to the wall for what they believed. Most of them lost all their possessions, and many of them lost their lives because of what they, because of what they believed. So the evidence, you see, is, is, is extremely good that Jesus' body was not, uh, was not stolen. Well, maybe they went to the wrong tomb. That's also another objection that's often raised. Uh, there were people coming and going all day. And uh, they, they had followed, uh, there had been a, a procession that had followed Jesus' uh, you know, followed Jesus' body into the tomb. They knew where the tomb was located. And even if Mary Magdalene had been mistaken in the very beginning, there were others that went to the tomb. And, and there, were, there were a lot of comings and goings. That mistake would have been rectified uh, quickly. Some have said, well, maybe Jesus just fainted on the cross and the coolness of the tomb revived him and uh, gave the appearance of having risen from the dead. No, no, that, the evidence uh, 
proves conclusively that that's not true. The Roman authorities certified that he died. They pierced his side with a, with a spear to make it certain. And uh, he had been without food and water in this tomb. Is it really reasonable that he would, even if he did faint, that he could break out, remove the tomb, overpower the guards, walk half mile or so back into town on his broken feet, and uh, give the appearance that he was, he was a risen Lord? Others say, well, the documents have been doctored. The New Testament was written very late, third century, you know, concocted by the church to kind of pious fraud to make us believe that this really, uh, really happened. But in fact, uh, that's not true. It's not true. Uh, these documents are very early. The evidence, the manuscripts we have, our basic historical documents, are extremely early is better than the evidence for any other manuscripts from antiquity. As a matter of fact, a number of years ago, they were digging in Alexandria, Egypt, and they uncovered a mummy. And uh, as they were peeling the mummy case off, they found a little section of papyrus that had writing on it, and they looked at the writing. It was a section from John 18, if you can believe that. And they were able to date the mummy during the reign of Trajan, who died in 117. They did it through coins and other artifacts impossible to date it any later than the reign of Trajan, which would put the book of John. See, here's a a section of John that had traveled from uh, the northern side of the Mediterranean all the way to Alexandria, Egypt, and uh, had been discarded and was used in a mummy case. And, you know, within within 20 years, 25 years of of its writing, you know, it's just inconceivable that the evidence could have been concocted. You stop and think about it. Suppose a book came out that said that John F. Kennedy rose from the dead. And there, there are all these witnesses that saw him. All you'd have to do is produce the body or talk to the witnesses, and, and you could give the lie to that, to that notion uh, quickly. Well, the evidence is, is very, very good. But, you know, that evidence never has convinced anyone. Never. Because uh, no evidence is overwhelming. The only thing that convinces us is our heart. Now, it's not that, uh, that, the, that the stories in Scripture are unbelievable and irrational and absurd. That's not the point. I want you to understand that the evidence is very, very good, good but the evidence is not overwhelming. What convinces us It's when we open up our hearts to Jesus and we say, I want to know. I want to follow you. And then you will know. You will know. See? Now, let's talk a little bit about your death because that's a very real possibility. We would like to live forever. Again, another Woody Allen saying, I don't want to live on in the hearts of my friends. I want to live on in my apartment. And, uh, you know, that's the way most of us uh, look at We want to live forever. And when you're young, that's what you think you're going to do. You think you're immortal. You'll never die. But when you get closer to the end of your life than the beginning, then that grave does begin to yawn, and you, you just cannot get it out of your mind. It's just there. It keeps slipping back in. And even though we try to deflect our thoughts away, it just keeps coming back to us, and it keeps coming back to us. And we have to face the hard, brutal fact of our death. Now, it's at that point you hit the wall. So your money may buy you out of a number of things. Uh, you can handle ill health 
because there might be a doctor out there that can cure you. You can handle a divorce because there might be somebody else that will love you. You can handle uh, uh, the, the, some other relationship that's broken up because you, you might find a friend, but you, you just can't handle death because there are simply no answers to that problem, no answers here on earth. Let me read something that Tom Howard wrote. He's a professor of theology at Gordon College. It captures something of the way we feel, I think, in the presence of our death. Like a hen before a cobra, we find ourselves incapable of doing anything at all in the presence of the very thing that seems to call for the most drastic and decisive action. The disquieting thought that stares at us like a, a fact with a freezing grin is that there is, in fact, nothing we can do. Say what we will, dance how we will, we will soon enough be a heap of ruined feathers and bones, indistinguishable from the rest of the ruins that lie about. It will not appear to matter in the slightest whether we have met death with equanimity, shrieks, or trumped-up gaiety. There we will be. Now, when it finally dawns on you that someday you're going to die, uh, everything comes to an end. You you start thinking, why in the world have I spent so much time trying to make a living? Why did I even get married? Why did I raise children? Why did I work so hard to get to to the top of the pile? What do my investments mean to me today? Why is it so important that I have enough money that I can retire in, in, in style? And there's a kind of a despair that sets in that uh, psychologists refer to as ego chill. And then every beat of our heart is like a drumbeat that's leading us to our death. As Agnes St. Vincent Millay uh, describes it, it's the ticking of eternity. Every time we look at our, at our wristwatch, we know that we're a little closer to death than the last time we looked at, looked at it. And that's when we hit the wall. And there is no way out apart from Jesus. And it's then that we say, Lord Jesus, help me. And we just crawl under the shelter of his invisible wings. And we may not understand what it means for him to be our master. Uh, It's like taking a blank sheet of paper and just filling it in, or not filling it in, just signing the bottom and handing it to him and saying, I want to follow you. See, it's then that we know, we know. It's then that our heart becomes convinced, as the, the hymn puts it that we sing so often. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. The Spirit of God begins to witness to our heart that we truly belong to him. You see, that's the biblical theory of knowledge. There are a lot of ways to know things. You can know things rationally. You can know things empirically. You can know things intuitively. You know, any philosophy class that you take will tell you that there are all these ways to know, but there's one that, that is often overlooked, and it's the one we've been talking about. The way to know is to want to know. If you really want to know that you're his, then just let him know that you're his. Any load, any distance, any place, any time, I want to go your way, Lord Jesus. Help me. When my mother passed away some years ago, I was going through her effects, and I stumbled across a little set of books. 
written by F.B. Meyer. And uh, I have enjoyed uh, reading these devotionally over the last year or so. And This is the one on the Gospels. And I want to read what Meyer said about this section, John 20. Jesus saith to her, Mary. This was written before the turn of, of, of the century. <clears throat> many had called her by that name. She had been wont to hear it many times a day from many lips. But only one had spoken it with that intonation. In his mouth, its familiar syllables had a sweetness and tenderness which lingered in her heart. Her eyes had deceived her, startled by the sudden glad expression which had passed over the features of the angels who sat century in the sepulcher. She had turned herself back to see the source from which the radiance had gleamed. But even with that hint to help her, she had failed to recognize her Lord. But her ear could not mistake. The voice carried immediate recognition. The Master knows your name and calls his own by them. There is one response which he wants to elicit, one which alone will satisfy him, one in which the love and devotion of a life may be summed up. Like Mary, let us turn and say to him, Rabboni, that is to say, my master. Let's pray. If you're struggling with doubt this morning, it's okay. It's all right. Most of us struggle with doubt from time to time to time. Those uncertainties are never assuaged merely by reason. The only way to know is to want to know. And if you will come to the Lord this morning, even with your incomplete understanding, and you'll say, Lord Jesus, help me, help me. He'll begin to make himself known to you. Remember what Jesus said? He that loves me, will be loved of my Father, and I will love him or her and make myself real. Lord Jesus, thank you for this reminder again that it really did happen. On that first Easter morning, you burst out of that tomb in glory to eternal life, and uh, we can follow you. We don't have to fear death any longer. We see it as not something to be dreaded, but a portal, a door through which we must pass in order to gain eternal life. And uh, thereby its, its sting is uh, removed. So, Lord, uh, again, we come to you and, and we echo Mary's words, Master, my Master. And we ask that you would master our hearts and uh, that we would increasingly see the truth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.